studying the book of Revelation on Sunday morning. For those of you who are with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, would you just wave and you'd like one? Would you just wave to the guys coming up the aisle right now and they'll put a Bible in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, that Bible is a gift from the Lord to you today. And uh, usually you'll be fairly lost uh, in, in a church, uh, no matter what the passage is, without a Bible to look at. Never trust me enough uh, as a Bible teacher without looking at a Bible and seeing if what I'm saying is actually there. That'd be a disservice to you and to me. But, um, uh, but to, to, you know, have a Bible and, and then to... Uh, to be able to read along, and if you don't have a Bible, we want you to have, uh, to have that, uh, that Bible. And especially as we come to a passage like today, where um, even the uh, most studious of Bible students would be at a fair loss without a Bible. So we want you to, to follow along. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he could not deceive the nations, so he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. He'll go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, that is the entire world, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as as the sand of the sea. And they went up in the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, that is Jerusalem. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they shall be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us today. Thank you for how gracious you have been in our life. Those of us who are Christians, we, we recognize it in, in the greatest measure. But even, Lord, for those who stand before you right now who are not yet Christians, can look back and see, Lord, the grace, your preservation. You're keeping them alive, looking out for them, bringing them to a place like this. They, they might hear your offer of salvation and be saved and to enter into the fullness of the life that you have planned for them. And we pray for a work of your Holy Spirit in their lives that would cause that to happen. We all thank you for the privilege of being able to turn to your word. We thank you that you are a talking God, a communicating God, and you know what we need to hear, and you know what we need to know. And thank you for these verses in that category. And we pray that you would take the truths of the passage off of the printed page and bring them into our processing of the world and into our relationship with you this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> the passage that we look at this morning, um, not that the book of Revelation has been fluffy thus far, but this passage is especially uh, dense in its content. 
And so you can feel free in your mind to um, add any jokes you want in the course of it and uh, any puppy stories or whatever it takes to break uh, things up. But uh, just to be forewarned is to be forearmed heading through it. It is also important that if you are new to the Bible, that the entire Bible is not like this. Uh, it is uh, wonderfully dense in its own way. But as you listen today and you're new to the Bible, I will probably lose you somewhere along the way. Don't be alarmed by that. And uh, just understand what you can. Absorb it. All of these things take hearing multiple times before they become a part, not only of, uh, become something that we understand uh, clearly. And this passage is one of, those, uh, one of those passages. In these verses, we're given insights into the millennial reign of Christ, which is the next uh, step in terms of our going through the book of Revelation in God's undoing and overwhelming uh, the consequences of Adam and Eve's fall in the Garden uh, of Eden, the introduction of sin into man's life, into creation, creating a fallenness all around us. And uh, with the intent of God, now uh, uh, through the progression of events, including the millennial kingdom, uh, all of it one day giving way to a new heaven and a new earth that's going to be untainted at all uh, by sin. Concerning this, I think it's helpful to uh, reorient ourselves in terms of what are the next events that are going to occur in terms of the Bible's prophetic picture. The next event will be the rapture of the church. That will be followed by a seven-year tribulation period, at the end of which Jesus will come again at what is known as His second coming, complete with the battle of Armageddon, then there will be the establishment of what we're looking at today, a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. And then there will be, after that, the white throne judgment and the creation of a new heaven uh, and a new earth. So this morning we're going to narrow our focus to what's known as the millennial kingdom. This thousand-year reign of Christ is known as the millennium, the millennial kingdom, uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ. I use them interchangeably. I probably shouldn't because it confuses people and they wonder, is he th talking about the same thing because he's using these different names related to it. But uh, all of them describe the same event, the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. You notice that the words thousand years are mentioned twice in verses 1 through 3 and a total of six times uh, in our text this morning, verses 1 uh, through 10. Uh, thousand year period is known as the millennium uh, it, because the word millennium in our English language, it comes from two Latin words, milli, which means a thousand, and then annus, which means uh, years. There are some Christians who dismiss the entire idea of their, that Jesus is uh, going to uh, have a millennial or a thousand year reign or they dismiss the entire idea of the millennial uh, kingdom. And uh, what some of them will say is Revelation chapter 20 is the only place in the entire Bible that it's described. And so uh, because of that, uh, it's suspect in their minds. Now, to save my life, I don't understand this. I don't know how many times God has to say anything for someone like me to take it seriously. If He just says it one time, God Almighty has said it. Then He doesn't need to say it 50 times for us to say, that's the threshold now that we, we take this seriously. And it's almost as if God anticipates this kind of an objection that in this passage that he uses here, he repeats 1,000 six times uh, to drive home the point. The fact of the matter as well is that this thousand-year reign of Christ is not merely mentioned or referenced in Revelation chapter 20. References to it fill 
both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we'll look at that in a moment, and you'll recognize it uh, when you recognize uh, the verses. So as we consider some of the characteristics of of this thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth after His second coming, most significantly about His reign is that uh, about this uh, kingdom is that Jesus Himself will reign the, over the entire world from the city of Jerusalem. Uh, in, in chapter 19, as we saw last time, He'll return as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then you see specifically mentioned in chapter 20, verse 4, His reign for the thousand years. Again, we go to Psalm chapter 2, which deals with this whole issue from the, second, uh, from the Old Testament. And God declares, yet I have set my king, speaking of Jesus, on my holy hill uh, of Zion, speaking of Jerusalem, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession and you shall break them with a rod of iron you shall dash them uh, to pieces like a potter's uh, vessel some of us might remember in Daniel chapter 2 where King Nebuchadnezzar had this great vision of this image that was before him that represented the world ruling empires uh, uh, man-centered that would follow his world-ruling empire, the Babylonian Empire. And he sees this great image. Daniel gives him uh, the uh, interpretation of it. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. And he declared, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to, one, uh, to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. Daniel says, there's a kingdom that is coming that is going to supersede uh, these kingdoms of man, it'll stand forever. And inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain, the stone speaking of Christ, uh, out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. And you might remember that great image, this stone that comes back uh, into the image. It sits there in all of its uh, august uh, splendor. And then a stone that represents Christ hits the image in the feet. All of it crumbles, representing the ultimate crumble of, of man's rule upon the earth. And then all of it is blown away, and then this stone comes and fills the entire earth. It's talking about what we're talking about here this morning. The world, we're told, during the kingdom age will be marked by a universal worship of God and an uh, and, and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Speaking of worshiping him there, he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit in that period, Ezekiel chapter 11, and then uh, Ezekiel declares on behalf of God, and then I will give them one heart, and I will put one spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart uh, of, uh, and give them a, a heart of flesh that they may uh, walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. During the kingdom age there will be a universal obedience to uh, God's word. Uh, the kingdom age will be marked by uh, absolute perfect justice and righteousness. Isaiah chapter 51 verse 4. Listen to me my people, God declares. 
And give ear to me, O my nation, for law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait upon me, and my arm, uh, and on my arm, they will trust. There will be absolutely no injustice during the kingdom age. Uh, there will be no oppression of any kind uh, during the, the kingdom uh, age. And he will make sure that it happens. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. Uh, and in other words, his absolute authority is, is, it cannot be resisted in any way at all. What is right is all that he's going to allow to happen on the earth. And right in a person's relationship with God and in man's, in man's relationship with his, his fellow uh, uh, man. And so uh, that kind of authority, that kind of power in the hands of anyone other than Jesus would frighten us. Uh, but it doesn't frighten us uh, in, in his hands knowing what we do of him. And very simply, what's going to happen in the kingdom age is that the bad guys are going to live in fear of him. Any bad guys that there are. And, uh, and uh, as opposed to what we see so often today, where good people live in fear of the bad guys. None of that stuff is going to go on in the kingdom age. And imagine the quality of life that will result from that alone. The world will be marked by uh, worldwide peace and security. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. No wars, no crimes, no act of violence at all uh, during the millennial reign. It'll be marked by a time of universal material prosperity. Uh, there'll be no hunger at all during that thousand years, no uh, deprivation of any kind. Uh, God spoke through Amos in this regard, Amos chapter 9, verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, and the mountains shall drip with uh, sweet wine, and all the hills uh, shall flow with it. Uh, that the barns won't even be empty, so to speak, of the previous harvest to make room for the new harvest that is coming in. And during this kingdom age, nature... It, all of creation is going to exist in a, in a harmony that it hasn't known since uh, the Garden of Eden or known since before the flood. Uh, there'll be a harmony and peace uh, but, uh, within the animal kingdom and also between uh, man and animals. Uh, famously, most people have heard this at one time or another, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, the wolf shall uh, dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall, shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them, and the ox and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den, and they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The lifespan of, of human beings will be increased. It will allow people to live uh, during this thousand-year reign and, uh, and enjoy uh, the, the blessing of it for the full thousand years. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20, No more shall an infant from there live but a, a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die uh, 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. And so there'll be a virtual absence, uh, apparently, uh, of, of, dis, uh, of disease and uh, a longevity that we don't know today. The world is going to be marked by 
uh, uh, ceaseless, endless joy. I, I, it, it, it breaks my heart, the level, the degree to which joy has disappeared and in our age. So much fighting. You can't have joy in the middle of the kind of fighting that goes on uh, today. But all of the different things that have happened and people are, if I go to the mall or I walk around anywhere and people are in the stores, this joy, this vibrancy that used to mark us uh, is gone and it's been uh, lost in the last five years or so. Well, the kingdom age, it'll be unceasing joy and, and celebration for the full thousand years. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, Therefore with joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation, and in that day you will say, Praise the Lord, call upon His name, declare His deeds among the peoples, make mention that His name is exalted. And then very significantly, as we see in the passage here in, in Revelation chapter 20, we are told that Satan will be bound during the thousand years and he'll be cast into an abyss, into a, a bottomless pit. So you see kind of the, the two main characteristics of the kingdom age are given to us here in chapter 20. And then the rest of the Bible fills in the blanks for us. And the main thing is that Jesus is going to rule and reign for the thousand years and that Satan is going uh, to be bound. There'll be no demonic oppression. There'll be no temptation from him. None of his lies that he fills uh, the whole world with. No spiritual warfare of any kind. And imagine what a difference in the quality of life uh, his being bound uh, will make as well. Now, with that, let's spend the, the, our remaining time looking at this passage concerning the millennium uh, it, itself narrowing to what's found uh, in, in the text. Remember from chapter 19, at Jesus' second coming, complete with uh, Armageddon, the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into uh, Gehenna. And then now in this passage, Satan, that third part of that unholy trinity, is going to join them there at the end of, of the, the thousand years. And so it fills in the blank uh, on many levels, but on that level as well. You notice that prior to the beginning of the millennium, Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years. We're told that in verses 1 through 3. John sees an angel come down from heaven. He has in his possession a key to the bottomless pit. This is not Hades. This is not hell. Uh, this, uh, uh, this is an abyss, the abuso. And it appears to refer to uh, what we were introduced to in chapter 9, that abode of the demons where the, the abyss was opened up and these demonic creatures came out as a part of the fifth trumpet judgment and, uh, and Satan will then be cast into that abuso. It will not be a pleasant experience for Satan. Uh, the abuso, whatever it is, uh, demons don't like to be there. You remember when Jesus in his public ministry went to the area of Gadara. There was a man who was demon-possessed by many demons. The demons called themselves legion. We don't even know how many people. A Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers. How many demons were in him. And the demons recognized that Jesus was going to cast them out of uh, this man. And they said, don't send us into the abuso. Uh, they feared being sent into the abyss here, send us into that uh, flock or that herd rather of, uh, of pigs and, and Jesus allowed them uh, to do so. They begged Jesus that he wouldn't command them to go into the abyss. This angel has a great chain in his hand and you notice in verses 2 and 3 what he does to the devil. He lays hands on him, he binds him for a thousand years, then he casts him into the bottomless pit. We're told that he shuts him up there and, and, uh, and, and puts a seal uh, upon that uh, bottomless pit. And all of that's intended to communicate the sureness of, of Satan's incarceration. He has zero ability to affect what is going to be his portion here for a thousand years. No means of escape. 
I always like to notice that the angel that comes and takes him and casts him in this abuso uh, is uh, Angel Barney. Uh, he's just a regular angel. There's no mention that he is a cherubim, that he's a seraphim, that he is an archangel. Uh, there is no mention that he is an angel, as we've seen, that can stand in the sun or one hand on the land or one hand on the sea. It's just Joe Blow Angel shows up, and when it is time for Satan to be cast into that, uh, into that abuso, all that needs to happen is just one angel being given the okay with God's authority to then do that. There is an infinite distance between the power of God and the power of the devil. He is, he is not the opposite of, of God that would intimate equality related to them. There is an infinite distance between the Creator and the creation. And Satan is a creation. And when God is done with him and, and the purposes that he serves presently, uh, he will uh, be bound and, and cast for this thousand years into that abuso. We're told the reason for Satan's incarceration here in verse 3, in order that he would not deceive the nations any longer till the thousand years were finished. And so... Again, the world is going to be without demonic influence for a thousand years. And you can say, uh, hip, hip, hooray in your heart, quietly between you and God. After the thousand years, we're told in verse 3, he'll be released for a little while. He doesn't escape. It's not a jailbreak. It's not a movie. Uh, he is released. It's the only way that he gets out of there because he's going to serve as a purpose of God in being uh, released. Now, immediately after Jesus' second coming, the Bible tells us that Jesus is going to judge the survivors of the tribulation period uh, over a period of 45 days. Daniel chapter 12, uh, verse 12 lays that out for us, in which he will separate the sheep from uh, the goats. Jesus described it himself in Matthew chapter 25 in his Olivet Discourse, verse 31. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, second coming, and the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all of the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The sheep here refer to tribulation saints. People that become Christians during the tribulation uh, period, Jew and Gentile alike, who will uh, survive the tribulation period. Uh, they will survive without being martyred by, uh, by the Antichrist. And so sometimes people wonder as they hear about this millennial kingdom, uh, who exactly is going to inhabit the earth, who is going to uh, populate the earth during this millennial period, it is going to be these people. It is going to be tribulation saints, people who know Christ, and they survive the tribulation period. They are uh, the sheep. The goats refers to those who also survived the tribulation period, but they have aligned themselves with the devil. They've refused God's continual offer of salvation, even through the tribulation uh, period. And so, uh, having aligned themselves determinedly to, to Satan, they then will share uh, his end after standing before Jesus at the white throne judgment uh, of Jesus, as we'll see next week. Now, at this point, somebody might wonder, Okay, uh, I, I understand now a little bit about the millennium. I understand uh, who is, is going to then 
be the significant or the only population uh, of the earth during that time, tribulation saints. But what are we going to be doing as Christians uh, who have now accompanied Jesus from heaven at his second coming? What are we going to be doing uh, during the, the millennium? And during the millennium, we're told in verses 4 through 6, we are going to reign with Jesus during those thousand years. So in a nutshell, uh, we will rule and reign with Jesus during that period as it's described there in verse 4. And we will, we will reign with him in the sense that we will assist him in his reign. So at that particular point in time, uh, and, and Christians can oftentimes get confused by this and concerned about this, especially when the world gets deceived and Satan is released at the end of the thousand years and people follow him in a great number. And Christians, you know, can get worried about that and say, well, will I be deceived and follow in that, in that nonsense that is going to go on? No. Uh, when when we come back with Jesus to rule and reign with Him, we will, we will possess our eternal portion in the sense that we'll all already possess our bodies. The cor our corruption will have put on incorruption. Our mortal will have already been put on uh, our immortality. And so we'll already be uh, 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 in that situation set up for eternity and we're going to serve Jesus as He rules the world from the city of Jerusalem. Now the three categories that we're given here of, of Christians who are going to make up uh, this, this group that's going to rule and reign uh, with the Lord uh, uh, during that thousand years. And... Uh, it, there is the reference to the Old Testament and New Testament saints. It certainly can, uh, includes us. You notice in the opening of, of verse 4, John saw thrones and those who sat on them to whom judgment <clears throat> was committed. Excuse me. Almost certainly a reference to the 24 elders that we saw earlier in chapter 4 in, in the book of Revelation and uh, and and where they represent the church as a whole, they represent Old Testament and New Testament saints uh, in heaven, given the fact that we see them in Revelation chapter 5, uh, singing a prayer to God, uh, a worship to God that only a Christian can, uh, can sing to Him. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. And so the 24 elders, the best guess related to all of that is that they will uh, represent the Old Testament, New Testament church and that there'll be a representative from each of the 12 tribes of Israel and then in addition to that, the 12, uh, the 12 apostles. All of that's very consistent with what Jesus spoke to the, the apostles, to the 12, in Luke chapter 22, verse 28. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes uh, of Israel. You say, well, that's fine. I'm talking about the 12, talking about the apostles, uh, but uh, is that kind of a place of ruling and reigning with Christ simply limited to the apostles? But the Bible doesn't limit that work of ruling and reigning with Jesus during the kingdom age to the apostles alone, but it includes every Christian. You might remember when Jesus wrote to the church in Thyatira, Revelation chapter 2 verse 25, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes, talking about regular Christians like us, and keeps my words until the end, to him I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessel shall be broken to pieces as I have received from my Father. So he promises the overcomer, he promises Christians, 
that we will rule and reign with him. He quotes Psalm 2, which is a direct reference to uh, the, the uh, millennial reign. In Jesus' parable of the minas, there were the, uh, the servants that were given, one given ten minas, another given five minas, and so forth. And the servants that were faithful with the ten minas and the five minas, in Luke chapter 19, uh, verse 17, uh, Jesus said, and he representing himself in, in the uh, in the parable, and he said to him who was faithful with the ten minas, well done, good and faithful servant, because you were faithful in very little, uh, a very little have authority over ten cities. And the second one came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. And likewise, he said to him, uh, you be over five cities. So speaking of the sphere of influence that each of us will have as Christians during that kingdom age, will be determined by our faithfulness to God and to His call upon our lives and the Christian life that we've lived here um, in, uh, prior to, uh, to all of this. And so, uh, if any of us end up uh, ruling and reigning on uh, Jesus' behalf in a little village in Siberia for the thousand years, uh, you'll know that we've been a little less than faithful in our Christian service. Uh, today we remember too the apostle Paul wrote to the church of Corinth uh, concerning this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 1 dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints do you not know that saints will judge the world and if the world will be judged by you how are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters again we will be judges in the sense that we will enforce what it is that Jesus has brought, uh, brought in to bear and to birth during uh, the kingdom age. We will reinforce his, his righteous reign. Now the tribulation saints who uh, refused to uh, worship the Antichrist and were martyred, as we're told in verse 4, uh, martyred and are uh, in heaven as a result of all of this, they too will constitute this uh, ruling and reigning uh, with Christ. You notice that martyrdom, it's the one hint in the Bible that we have of how the Antichrist and those that are aligned with him are going to seek to uh, martyr Christians during the kingdom, a, uh, during the tribulation period, and it speaks of beheading uh, here. So I don't know if they're saving ammunition somewhere along the way, or if they make this a, uh, a public sport of some kind, some form of entertainment for the bloodthirsty uh, uh, masses, Satan being uh, bloodthirsty for uh, Christian blood uh, always. The rest of the dead, and this speaks of in verse 4, uh, the wicked, the ungodly, the unsaved, they'll have no part at all in the millennium. Uh, they'll go straight into Hades and await uh, the white throne judgment again. We'll look at that next week. Now, these three groups of, of Christians, the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, um, the tribulation saints, uh, 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 John informs us here that they constitute what is known in the Bible as the first resurrection. That's a phrase that some of us are familiar with. The first resurrection doesn't happen in an instant in time like the second resurrection will. The first resurrection is a resurrection that is still going on even to this day. The first resurrection began with the death, burial, and the resurrection of uh, Jesus Christ. And uh, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen uh, asleep. And so that resurrection, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, uh, that same uh, everlasting life, the power of His resurrection comes into our lives. And so uh, it also includes the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. We get a little hint of it in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. 
and following Jesus' resurrection, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after His resurrection. And so it also includes those, again, who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation uh, period. And so there's a 1,000-year separation between the first resurrection and the second uh, uh, resurrection. And the second resurrection, as we're told a little bit later in in verse 14 uh, of the same chapter, is a resurrection out of Hades to then stand before, uh, resurrected now to stand before the the white throne judgment of Christ. You notice in verse 6 that John declares the blessings of being a part uh, of the first resurrection uh, over these Uh, the second death has no power. And again, the second death is talking about the the judgment that follows the white throne uh, judgment. It refers uh, to, uh, the the first death refers to uh, the death of the body, a physical death. The second death uh, refers to eternal judgment or eternal death. We're told that uh, we will be priests of God and of of Christ. So instead of eternal judgment, we will enjoy the privilege of serving the Lord for that thousand years and that they will, we will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, the, the most astonishing part of the entire passage is in verses 7 through 10, where at the end of the thousand year reign, uh, a final rebellion is, is led by Satan and uh, it'll be allowed and then ultimately crushed. You notice in verse 7, at the end of the, the millennial kingdom, Satan will be released from his uh, imprisonment. Again, he's released. He's not in control of the situation. He doesn't break out and overcome the angelic guards and make a run for it. He's released, and he's released for a purpose. In verse 8, he will immediately go forth into the world, this world that has known nothing but perfection for a thousand years under Christ. He'll go into the world to deceive the nations into thinking uh, that they can rebel against God uh, and uh, win. So we see Satan for what he is. He is incurable. He is an incurable liar. He is an incurable destroyer. He is incurable hater of God. He is an, an incurable hater of man, uh, mankind. And when he goes to lead this final rebellion against God, you would think that he'd come on the scene and say, okay, let's overthrow him here, and everybody would sit on their hands. Say, what are you talking about? We wouldn't rebel. <laughs> This is the best thousand years that mankind has ever known. I mean, nothing could be better than a new heaven and a new earth. I mean, you would think that would be the response to people at that time. But that's not the response that happens. We're told that his temptation will be very, very successful. Nations are going to join him. And the number of people will be without number, like trying to number the sands of the sea. Well, that, again, that raises the question, who are these people? Remember the tribulation saints. They're born again. They enter into uh, the, the kingdom age. They're the ones that uh, inhabit the earth in that unique way, repopulate, all of those kinds of things. But it doesn't mean their kids are saved. And it doesn't mean their grandkids are saved and their great-grandchildren and their great-great-grandchildren are are saved. So generations and generations of people are going to be born for a a thousand uh, years and uh, without any kind of test to whether they are faithful to God or uh, or not. And so... Uh, the, they will be, these will be those that are, are born during that, that tribulation period to, uh, to in, the, in the kingdom age to the tribulation saints. And, and unlike their parents who, having been uh, born during the millennium, uh, they, and all they will know, these children and so forth, 
They'll only know perfect righteousness, perfect blessing. Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. No rebellion uh, allowed. They, they will not have any real chance to rebel against Him and His authority. And then here, after a thousand years, they're given that opportunity. And they jump on it. They jump on the opportunity. Despite the perfection of the environment, that they were born into and raised in and lived in for a full thousand years. And it reveals that, as is the case with some Christian children raised in, uh, some children raised in Christian homes, that while they live with an outward submission to the rules and to the, the, the righteous standard during the kingdom age because they had to, they never submitted to it in their heart and are never ever born again. And this final rebellion of Satan and those who choose to follow him is allowed in order that the hearts of everyone on the earth at that time might be revealed for what they truly are. Whether those hearts are committed to God or they are committed to rejecting him. And a choice for that group of people uh, is necessary in order for that separation to occur. God doesn't want anyone to be in heaven that doesn't want to be in heaven. And He doesn't want anyone to be in hell that doesn't want to be in hell. And that's why we choose our eternal destinations and He allows it to be so. Now, when we read this and we see Gog and Magog, so we're dealing with, I'm talking to the nerds now. So when you see Gog and Magog here, your mind goes back to Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, where there's this great battle and war that takes place. Don't think that this is talking about the same battle that occurs here. A thousand years separate these two battles. Gog and Magog, I, I would guess, are used here uh, symbolically, are used to represent uh, even as they actually were in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and will be, be uh, before the tribulation period starts, uh, symbolic of nations and peoples that are always have been, always will be uh, hostile to God and His people. And so Satan and his newfound uh, army united behind him. They're going to lay siege to Jerusalem where Jesus will be reigning. Uh, the saints uh, will be uh, with him there. We will be with him there. But also those that have been born during the tribulation period and have trusted in Christ. So Jerusalem will become a place uh, of refuge. And verse uh, uh, 9 the re rebellion is uh, handily crushed. Fire came down out of heaven and devoured them. No big battle. Uh, no tires burning in the alleys and in the streets and taking it block by block and building by building. It's just flame on and it's, and it's all over. And then in verse 10, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. He'll be re reunited with uh, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet, they're still there after a thousand years. So, uh, you know, it, it poo-poo's the idea of annihilation in terms of eternal judge, uh, judgment. And you notice that Satan, when he is cast in there, that he is, he is not the king there. He does not rule heaven. He is a participant in, in Gehenna. And all of this then will bring an end of the thousand year reign of Christ and with this an end, a complete end of all of man's and all demonic and all of the devil's rebellion against God. Now let me close with a couple of brief points here. Someone might ask, well, why is there a millennium at all? Why not just go second coming, battle of Armageddon, white throne judgment, and then new heaven and new earth. Why shoehorn in this thousand-year reign of, of Jesus in, in all of this? Well, I certainly am, uh, don't know all the answers to that, and I don't know that anybody uh, will. But we do learn a couple of things uh, 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 here that are important for us processing 
our own lives and the lives of, uh, of people around us in the world uh, uh, around, uh, around us. First of all, the millennium, in the millennium, uh, it's going to put on full display to everyone the incredible potential of this planet Earth. And when this earth gets handed over to Jesus at His second coming, after the devastation of those judgments, it's going to be in worse shape than we can even imagine. Certainly worse shape than it's in today. And yet, when this earth, this physical earth, we're not talking about heaven yet, comes under the oversight of God, it flourishes in, in a way that it never has in human history. And, and, and you watch as you look through human history, when you look at nations or you look at civilizations and you look at which ones prosper and which ones don't, most often you will see prosperity is very closely linked to what nation lives closest to what God declares is to be true and to be righteous in His Word. And so He is going to demonstrate the full potential uh, of this world uh, under the right leadership. No wars, no crime, none of the stuff that we, have to, to, that we deal with here uh, to, today. And second, it teaches us just how incurably addicted human beings are to sin and to self-will, and, uh, and, and apart from being born again, of course. And sin and self-will, self-will being expressed against God, it ruins everything. There's the classic argument that has gone on the whole history of mankind in terms of the plight that we find ourselves in, whether we're uh, dealing with uh, whatever kind of ill of the society at the moment, everyone will sit down and say, is this the result of uh, heredity uh, in, in people, uh, what mankind is, or is, is this plight caused by environment? And, and as, as we all know, uh, these situations in life that, w- that become a plight, they're usually, a p- both parts are, are in there. It is heredity and it is also uh, I- I- environment. And, and, and so the, it, we don't minimize at all uh, the significance in, of how a bad environment, a bad childhood, a bad whatever will influence individual human beings or large groups of people. Environment has a huge impact, but it is secondary as we see here related to the, to the, to the millennial kingdom. It is second in terms of what we are by heredity, what we are as descendants, fallen descendants of Adam and Eve, each possessing a sin nature that loves sin and we love our own uh, will and an unwillingness to, uh, apart from the Holy Spirit, to yield ourselves to God and to, to His will. Jeremiah said famously about our hearts, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can uh, know it? That describes your heart and it describes my heart apart from Christ, and that heart will be on full display in this, uh, this rebellion. And the millennium testifies to the truth of the wickedness of man's heart. Here is fallen man placed in a perfect environment for 1,000 years. Perfect environment. All he's known is peace and prosperity and righteousness, no crime, no war, no want, no victims, no prisons, no, no armies, no police, no oppression, no hunger, no disease, all of those things. Perfect environment. And, and, and yet, at the first opportunity to rebel against Jesus, who is the source of all of it, a line will form in order to uh, join Satan in that rebellion and it will be made up of an uncountable multitude.
Man is not innately good. He is not born good. You can put any one of us in the most perfect environment all of our lives, and we will still have a wicked heart, and, and, and uh, we will still be incurably addicted to sin and to selfishness. And so, yes, we should work very, very hard to improve negative and, and unrighteous environments in the world that destroy people's lives, and, uh, and not to lose sight or to, to minimize uh, the devastating effect, effect of that that kind of thing. But as Christians, we never lose sight of the real cause behind man's sin and selfishness, a sin nature. It's why the environment is what it is. You can't divorce the two. Why is it the mess that it is? Because somebody has a heart from Adam and Eve that's fallen, nature that has produced that environment. The only solution to that is by putting my faith in Jesus, being born again, and then a new nature comes into my life by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gives me a hunger for righteousness and doing right, and a hunger to love God and to love my neighbor as myself rather than be addicted to selfishness, and, and it brings a longing to live that kind of life that is even stronger than the pull of our flesh to live in a completely uh, opposite direction. And so the importance for us as Christians is to stay on message that that is the core problem and the, and the solution to that problem is still Christ. And however much we might be involved in fixing up um, environment. And the third thing that is revealed here is uh, to us is why the uh, unsaved or the, uh, and the unsaved are unrepentant. Why the unrepentant can't be allowed into heaven. Because if they have enjoyed the fullness of those blessings for a thousand years, and it has made no dent on them in terms of their attitude toward God and His rule, then you can put them into heaven and it won't make a dent there. All they'll do is ruin heaven. And that's why a person needs to be born again, experience a spiritual birth, in order to not only be qualified for heaven, but not to ruin heaven. And so here we learn that Jesus is not going to allow the devil to win in human history. He has a plan. It's a perfect plan. And the devil will one day be put in his place, finally crushed and, and finally defeated. And that's good news. And to know what happens to him in that period and what will happen to us in this period that's described here, not only in chapter 20, but in so many places in the Bible. What can God do? And I know I'm going over. What can God do any more than he's done than to tell us that the wages of sin is death and, that it, and then to send his son into the world in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sin and salvation and then offer us that salvation as a free gift and then warn us about how all of this is going to play out ahead of time so that we will make the right decision concerning His salvation and His Savior before it does. The only thing that He could do more than that is to force us to be saved. And He won't do that. That's a decision that we make. And if you've never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, in your life, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service. And they would love to answer your questions and pray with you to make Jesus your Savior and your Lord. And then to be on the right side of not only life now, but everything that is coming down the pike in the future. And it's all there for the asking. 
It's all there for the receiving. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace. I mean, here you are, you, you make history known to us all the way down to the end. You make clear the consequences of the decision that we make concerning your Son. You make very clear to us the danger to the devil, demonic deception, to lies, to deception, period. Lord, the condition that we're in, apart from being indwelt by your Holy Spirit. And we pray for each man and woman that you love so much that stands before you and they have never surrendered to you, Lord. Not ready for heaven. They would ruin heaven if they came in their current state. But you want to prepare them. You want to clothe them with your righteousness and save them today. We pray that you would speak to their hearts. They would come forward and be saved after the service. As Christians, Lord, we thank you for the perfection of, of your plan. Thank you for the blessings, all of the incredible blessings that are ours now and how many are out in front of us forever and ever. Thank you, Father. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Mike, would you close us?